Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. We're coming to the end of another week on Political Rewind, and I have to say that it's been, uh, in many ways, a very somber week. Uh, We've uh, talked extensively, and you've heard it uh, uh, reported uh, widely on on the news, that we reached 100,000 deaths uh, uh, from COVID-19 in this country this week. Uh, Most public health experts believe the number is much higher than that, uh, but uh, uh, because we didn't necessarily know whether a person died, whether there was a, whether an autopsy revealed or testing revealed the person had COVID-19. There's no way of ascertaining how many more people may have died from the disease. Um, and then people woke up this morning to uh, news about rioting going on in cities across the United States in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. And, and really, uh, before that, the national news that was reported uh, out of uh, Glynn County, Georgia, about the death of Ahmaud Arbery. You've heard um, some of it on NPR News just a moment ago, but l- let me just, uh, before I introduce the panel, uh, read you a little bit of what's happened overnight. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reported, of course, on the rioting in Minneapolis. Their lead, an angry crowd broke into the Minneapolis Police Department's 3rd Precinct headquarters Thursday night and set fire to the building, capping another day of protests, many of them violent across the Twin Cities. The police station had been the epicenter of protests this week for people demanding justice after the death of George Floyd, who died Monday when a Minneapolis police officer set his knee on Floyd's neck for several minutes. Near the police station, a wine and liquor store was looted and set ablaze. There were explosions in the area around the police station. Uh, In Denver, uh, the Denver Associated Press reports that overnight protesters swarmed through the city, blocking traffic and smashing vehicles while running from gunfire and police tear gas. Hundreds of demonstrators, the uh, uh, Denver AP reports, were in the downtown streets and uh, closed in on the uh, state capitol where they continued their demonstrations. Uh, The Columbus Dispatch, Columbus, Ohio, reports overnight a group of protesters was breaking windows, vandalizing and looting stores along South High Street in downtown after Columbus police officers tried to disperse the crowd. Uh, Some of the protesters broke into the state capitol, and the Columbus Dispatch reports a video taken from the building's lawn shows hundreds of people who had gathered to demonstrate for George Floyd. Um, meantime, state police officers were forced to lock down the Capitol building after gunshots rang out. Um, and so it's, it's become a, a, a horrifying scene to think of the protests going on. We had a small demonstration in Atlanta last night at CNN headquarters. There's a rally uh, scheduled for mid-afternoon today downtown. Um, So with that in mind, let me introduce the panel, and let's start our conversation on on this very important subject. Jim Galloway, of course, uh, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my partner on Mondays and Fridays. Jim, thank you for being here today. You know, Jim, as I woke to this news this morning, it was hard for me not to think back on riots that people about our age uh, remember with such uh, clarity from past years. I remember the Chicago riots in 1968 because that's where I lived and riots all over the country in major cities in the aftermath of Dr. King's death. Um, I think of the Detroit riots in 1965. Uh, I think of the riots in South Central, uh, which unfolded on live television. Uh, it, it, it's, this is a throwback that it's hard to reconcile with life in 2020. No, and then you throw in a coronavirus pandemic and, uh, and a, an economic downturn uh, to boot. I think, you're, you're, I, I think what we're, we're seeing is uh, kind of the beginning of a very, very hot summer. Uh, and and the, 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 the slang of a, a black man in Minneapolis comes after Ahmaud Aubrey, of course. It comes after uh, the bird-watching incident in Central Park in New York City. Uh, uh, one thing you left out, Bill, was that you had seven people shot in Louisville, Kentucky, 
yesterday in Louisville, uh, and and uh, during a protest for uh, over uh, the death of Breonna Taylor, uh, a black woman uh, killed by police when they 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 entered her home with a no knock warrant. Uh, I think you're going to see this translated into the political conversation very very quickly. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And in fact, we'll do that with the rest of our panel uh, today. That includes Jackie Cushman, who we're really pleased to have back at our microphones. Jackie, it's been a while. We've been kind of repurposing the show to focus a lot on COVID-19 and so haven't been doing as much politics. Uh, But it's a pleasure to have you back. Jackie, of course, is a conservative columnist and author. Jackie, it occurs to me that your most recent book, is more necessary than ever right now, helping people figure out how we can bridge the divides and and, uh, be civil toward one another and understand each other better, Jackie. Well, Bill, um, thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it. And you're right. um, The book that came out last fall titled Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening, is, to your point, more, more relevant today than even in the fall. The sad thing to me is that as I started talking about this book that most people don't even want to focus about it because they're so busy screaming about the other side. And this is not about one side or the other. This is literally both sides. And um, I really believe, because I've done a lot of work, as you know, in the community for the last few decades in Atlanta, that the only way you really make progress is to come together, to listen, and to focus on working to solve problems in the community. And so I would, you know, just caution everyone because we are kind of, you know, we've, we've been staying at home and we've been frustrated and we've been we do need to fix problems. This country is not perfect by any means. Certainly what's happened recently shines a bright light on that, and people clearly have the right to protest. But peaceful protest is where we should focus. And also, if people are out protesting in big, huge Mont, we need to make sure that we, had, we are safe in terms of COVID. I mean, we, we tell people they have to wear, you know, masks and social distance at grocery stores. Um, and then there is obviously this, this challenge of going out and protesting and doing it in a way in which is safe. Um, both for them currently and also for the spread of COVID. So I think it really is a challenging time. Um, We also are joined by Jeremiah Olney. Jeremiah Olney is a partner at Paramount Consulting. Uh, Jeremiah, it's been a while since we've had you back, but it's a pleasure to have you here. Your firm does uh, lobbying, consulting work, government relations work for a number of companies and organizations. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Jeremiah. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I've really appreciated the turn the show has taken to focus on COVID-19 lately, but it's still a pleasure to be back. Leo Smith is with us as well today. Leo is um, a former uh, uh, official with the state Republican Party whose job was uh, largely to try to encourage minority participation in the Republican Party. Leo left that position and uh, went out to uh, work on that same, uh, not so much, I don't think, Leo, necessarily uh, in terms of bringing African Americans into the Republican fold as giving a larger voice to African Americans in our public affairs in general. Is that a fair way to say that, Leo? That is absolutely. I appreciate that um, description, Bill, and it's good to be back on your show again, a little respite from some of the COVID responsibilities with the task force. Um, But indeed, I mean, it's not just to bring voters to the Republican Party, it's to bring more inclusion and ideas. Um, A competition of ideas is is of utmost importance. And you can see now and today with what we're dealing with, all of the issues that we're dealing with, from the resilience of the community and dealing with the pandemic to the issues and social implications of the things from Arbery to Floyd. Um, you know, it's very important that, that we have a merging of science and reason and we have all people at the table to talk about these things. You mentioned Dr. King in your opening. I think one of the most um, impactful quotes that he's ever, and we quote him all the time, but this is just science and reason. A riot is the language of the unheard, Dr. King said. And when Langston Hughes spoke and saw poetry and people didn't listen, then people start to shout out gangster rap. And now you see people who feel disempowered um, rioting in the streets because they feel that they're not heard. And so we have to figure out how those in power can start to listen better and take action with those who lack power and understand where that's coming from, from a science and reason point of view. And I hope we can get to that work. 
So, Leo, thank you for establishing that for us. But I want to be careful here. Jeremiah, I'm going to start with you on this, and then I'd really love Jackie and Jim to uh, and Leo to weigh in as well. I, I want to be careful. I, I, I think that the, the outrage, the, the genuine rage that many people feel over the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, over the deaths of George Floyd, is, I don't think, I think most people would would say is entirely justified. Um, but Jeremiah, it, it, it's one thing to to feel that rage and want to work to change. I, I think it's hard for any of us to say the rioting that comes in the aftermath is the appropriate way to make a change, to bring about change, or even to express uh, in a in a productive way. Uh, the anger. Um, and we should also point out, Jeremiah, that a vast majority of people who are protesting these deaths have done it entirely peacefully, right? Yeah, and I think that's what we need to remember. It's not to conflate the rioting and the looting with the protests. I mean, just because a few people are behaving in a way that's disapproved of, it should not, that shouldn't be our focus. We shouldn't be detracting from the message here, which is people are upset and angry and rightfully so of years of mistreatment and harassment and killing by state violence, by police. And I don't think we should be penalizing people who are protesting peacefully for that. I mean, look at somebody like Colin Kaepernick. He protested in the most peaceful way possible, and he was vilified. He's still vilified for doing it in that way. So there really doesn't seem to be. I would like to know what is the appropriate way to protest. If you take a knee during the national anthem, you don't hurt anyone. You just speak out, you know, respectfully about the challenges your community is facing. You get dragged and vilified and you lose your job. But if you go out and you protest violently or you protest and you get angry and you're publicly angry, you get vilified. So what is the right way to protest? People keep saying this isn't the right way. So what is the right way to make a change? So, um, so I think it is actually great to go out and protest. And I think we're obviously, it's working because we're talking about it. So that's super important. And additionally, I think the, 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 the call to action has been much more rapid, which I think is very helpful. Because people, I think, have a very little tolerance for this type of very bad behavior. Um, but I think we also have to think about how do we both protest, which I think is really important to do, and also move people to figure out what is the solution. Because to your point, Jeremiah, you're exactly right. The protesting is great, but the protest is there to get right to a different outcome, which is the whole point of the protest. So I think it's helpful to think about what are the next steps, not just simply the protest, but what's coming next. Yeah, if I could, if Jim I could Galloway, jump, in, jump here. in on this. Yeah, if I could. Uh, number one, I think what we have to realize with with Minneapolis is it's and 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 this will be unfamiliar to people in the South. But but number one, it's it's, it's the population of Minnesota and Minneapolis is is majority white, and 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 the the socioeconomic divide is far greater there than it might be here. Here in Atlanta, we've got a fairly strong, a very strong black middle class. That's not the that's that's not the situation in in Minneapolis, and and it's 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 it's. It's a little bit sad too, because this, you know, this kind of violence uh, amounts to, to self-immolation. Uh, Bill, you mentioned '68 and and the riots of '68 that followed the 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 the, the assassination of Martin Luther King. I mean, you have. I mean, there were whole stretches in Oakland that that still have not recovered from that. Uh, uh, Fifty years later, Leo, why don't you jump in and talk, and, and give us your thoughts on this? Well, and, you know, we learn from history. And again, I'm so embroiled in the COVID response. I'm looking at systemic responses to crises, how we responded from political leadership to academic leaders, to citizens, to corporate leaders. And every time we don't seem to be progressing from Katrina jumping back from Katrina to HIV, what did we learn each time to create more resilience so that the, uh, the most vulnerable can be more powerful and, and more self, and have more self-efficacy in dealing with the issues that are impacting them? And as citizens get the same resources that those who have more access to power and, and income have. So 
what are we doing differently? The same thing when it comes to this issue of riots in the street. They keep happening, but we, even now, I feel that, you know, in this discussion, you know, there's this idea that only a few. Well, it only takes one scared police officer who's impacted or vigilante. It only takes one. It doesn't take many to kill someone simply. I have an African-American, a brown-skinned boy, and I am very concerned that we aren't taking this seriously enough. I appreciate action points. Chris Carr and our governor, even in Georgia, um, Vic Reynolds responded quickly to the Arbery situation. Um, Minnesota, we've got another situation there. It's happened to me. I've been stopped over 11 times. I asked my business partner, who's Caucasian, yesterday, I said, how many times have you been stopped without reason? He goes, huh, what do you mean? Like when I was speeding? I said, no, without reason. He could not conceive that I, his partner, had been stopped 11 times in my life just because, with no reason given other than you look suspicious or your car looks stolen, some crazy thing like that. So what I appreciate an action point about what Sam Olins did when he was attorney general, he was willing to work with President Obama on police reform. He was willing to work on with local, with local sheriffs and heads of the police departments to talk about um, how to properly have a, a staff that's trained to de-escalate, to get over some of these issues of color and fear about color. Um, those are very real actions that we can take in Georgia that Sam Olin's kind of left as a legacy. We need to pick that back up. We talked about the hate crimes legislation. The House bill is there. Ralston supports it. Jesse Stone is, is probably somebody that I would like to personally learn. What are your reasons right now for being hesitant about some form of hate crimes legislation in Georgia? Not just because I think that it is necessary in face of what the federal law is, but because I think we need to bring it home and we need to take more personal accountability and be an example. All right. So I think you uh, set the stage for uh, continuing a different uh, 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 point in this conversation. Uh, Jeremiah, Leo points out that Georgia's response to Ahmaud Arbery's death has been significantly different than what we've seen as a result of George Floyd. Now, we should point out that in the case of Arbery, he was not killed by police officers. Uh, He was killed by civilians, white civilians who have now been arrested and are going to stand a a trial for murder. Um, uh, Nevertheless, there are those who would say that a white uh, 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 prosecuting attorney, George Barnhill, uh, try to excuse the shootings and get and dismiss it as uh, as not being uh, worthy of prosecution. He ended up not being part of the case, and we know the Glynn County Police Department, uh, largely white, has often had issues over what many consider its its uh, profiling of of people who are African Americans. So, nevertheless, Leo points out Jeremiah that our state acted quickly on Ahmad Arbery which may be one of the reasons we haven't seen uh, the kind of violent clashes elsewhere. I mean, I think I do think that might be a part of it because the state, after it took several months of the Glenn County Police Department, the law enforcement system there ignoring the problem. And then finally Georgia picks up and then we started to move quickly. But I think part of it is that it was kind of the, at least in the last month, which is a terrible thing that state, that was kind of the first big incident. And then you had more outrage about Breonna Taylor um, about uh, Floyd. So it's only been getting worse. And I think this kind of rapid um, exposure, because, I mean, we've been seeing this for years. Like Eric Garner was six years ago. Michael Brown was six years ago. People have been protesting for six years. And what has meaningfully changed? People are still getting killed and harassed by police extrajudiciously. People are still being allowed off the hook for, you know, killing a black person for no reason whatsoever. Um, I think we're just it's, we're seeing a point of escalation now, and that certainly doesn't help that we're at this time where people are going a little more stir crazy, and people are looking. The people can't express their anger and their sadness in the way that they usually do, where they're coming together with their community and um, just kind of expressing how terrible this whole situation is. Their action is demanded now because nothing is changing. Yeah, um, Jim, I just want to jump in. And, yeah, go ahead, Jim. No, one one thing it's I think it's important to just to kind of uh, to to build on on what Jeremiah is saying is 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 to to 
to to note what happened yesterday, uh, there was a press conference. I, I I listened to it on the radio. I didn't I didn't watch it on TV. But it was you know it was the assembly of of uh, of all these uh, Minnesota officials, city officials, uh, state state officials, prosecutors, and such. And there was no news. You know, I mean, here 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 we are, days after after this man was 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 killed, was was slain on on video. Uh, every everybody saw what happened. And they are there still trying to say, uh, you know, uh, 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 be patient, be patient. I think you'll you'll note that you'll note uh, if if you go back to the Arbery case, uh, you know, within seventy two hours of that leaked video coming out, you know, you had two men in custody. Uh, prosecutors in Minnesota were saying they they don't want to they 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 want to do it right, so they want to do it slowly. You know, I've been, I've, I've written, I've followed, I've done a little bit of, of crime reporting myself, and I, I know that if you're looking to make a statement, you, you arrest somebody on a lesser charge, and then you build up. You don't have to, you don't have to wait to build the entire case. That's, that's, that, that that's, uh, that's, that's a little bit ridiculous. Right. Uh, Jackie, uh, Jim uh, uh, really makes a point. Uh, the uh, district attorney who is uh, uh, charged with prosecuting a, a, the case, if there is a prosecution, his name is Mike Freeman, uh, up in the, many, in the county that uh, Minneapolis is a part of. And he said there's not going to be a rush to charge. There's not going to be a rush to judgment. And he compares it uh, to... The, uh, it, to what happened in Baltimore, where he claimed that the state's attorney went to rush too quickly to charge in the Freddie Gray murder or shooting, excuse me. And as a result, everybody who was charged in that crime got off. There was a strong reaction out of Baltimore saying we had a strong case. It wasn't that we rushed to judgment. The point being uh, that some of the uh, most inf- uh, 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 some of what the DA in Minnesota said Minneapolis said helped spark even more anger last night well yeah and I think I me mean, I think Bill's got a, I mean um, I'm sorry Jim's got a great point about the timing I mean if you have something on video which clearly millions of people have seen now um, I'm not really sure what's holding them up and hopefully the people of Minneapolis will decide that if their elected officials can't do their jobs that they replace them. Um, to me, that would seem like a reasonable response to this. If, you're, if your government can't actually be called to action and get things done, then you should replace them. Um, but I do want to back up to two things. Um, one, I want to, want to say that clearly, you know, this type of behavior from police should never be acceptable, should not happen. And we do need training. I think um, several people have talked about that. The local training of police needs to happen. But I also want to say that on the opposite side, um, we also need to remember that there are the vast majority of police are very good people and do a great service to our communities. So I think we need to be careful. And again, I talk about this in my book about, you know, there, we try to paint everything as all great or all terrible, right? So, you know, terrible, you know, all terrible of this, all terrible of that, or all good of this and all good of that. And the reality is there's, there's some of both. So we need to be very careful and thoughtful about how we do that because the vast majority of police are good. The second thing I wanted to bring up that, um, that Leo said, which is I think really deep, and really important, but also really hard, is to talk about and think about how do we become more resilient as a people, especially communities that have undergone a lot. They, there's a lot of um, work that has been done that if you, if, you, if you take action and changes aren't made, then you begin to learn that you're helpless, which is the total opposite of resilience. And there's a whole field of study about that. So I think it's really important that we think about how do we make communities that have been traditionally, right, um, you know, discriminated against and, um, and have less power, how do we work with, how do we work to make them more resilient so they can, so we can all be more successful? And I think that's a lot of hard work, long-term work, but really important work. All right, uh, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. Uh, When we come back, we have not talked about President Trump's tweet. Uh, I think we absolutely need to. And I'd like to do that uh, after we pause for just a moment. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jeremiah Olney, Jackie Gingrich Cushman, uh, Leo Smith, Jim Galloway uh, with us for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Here's the tweet that President Trump sent out at uh, right around one o'clock this morning, which uh, the White House, as you may have heard on the NPR news break, officially sent out on their Twitter uh, just a short time ago. Quote, I can't stand back and watch this happen to a great American city, Minneapolis. These thugs, all caps, are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Uh, Just spoke to the governor, Tim Walls, and told him that the military is with him all the way, any difficulty, and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you, exclamation point. Leo? Well, I've spoken before that, that while there's much I like about the president's policy actions, his rhetoric needs to be voted out of office. That's ridiculous. It is poor leadership. It is dishonoring civil society in every way. And what he's suggesting is even against the law. So it does not help this situation at all. It's a travesty. It's horrible. Jackie, I I, I know that there are supporters of President Trump's who, um, as Leo just said, uh, are, are, are terribly put off by his uh, rhetoric by the way he behaves sometimes, but but believe that in fact he has uh, done good things for the country and 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 so support him in, despite that. And and you've been uh, a defender of the president uh, on, on on a number of occasions. But when you hear about a tweet like that, how do you re- react to that? Well, um, so a couple of things. First of all, I've never defended any of Donald Trump's tweets. So um, while I think some of his policies may be good, <laughs> right. clearly. Clearly, in my opinion, he has a you know communications challenge that I think um, would, he would be wise to fix. But he is the president, and he gets to communicate however he sees fit, regardless of how many of us might think it's not the most helpful. Um, so having said that, I mean, he also tweeted this morning, China with an exclamation point. Not really sure what's behind that, but seriously, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, so, so I think, unfortunately, um, we now have an environment that – that, again, both sides use to vilify the others. I mean, we, we've had that for years from this whole Russian attack and, you know, that the, there was a Russian collusion, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, now we know that wasn't true. And so, you know, that actually, the, you know, that they were looking at President Trump's campaign and there's some issues with how that was done. So I, I think we need to be super thoughtful about how we approach Twitter and the violations of free speech because, Free speech doesn't mean that I get to say things that are only properly said and communicated effectively, because that's not free speech. That's good communications. And free speech also means people get to say things that are stupid and, um, and, and not thoughtful and that people disagree with. And quite frankly, it also gets to say people get to say things that, when they're wrong. I mean, that's what free speech is. And so back to Leo's comment earlier this, this, this session about, you know, the, the competition of good ideas. Um, I think we need to think about how we do that and be thoughtful versus just yelling at the other side. Okay, Bill. On this, uh, number one, let's 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 be let's let's be upfront here. Thug in this context is a is a dog whistle. That's a racial dog whistle, uh, and there are times when you you, you know. We, when you get so frustrated by a president who will who, who in the midst of a very serious m- moment. Is 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 playing a, a nursery rhyme game uh, when the looting st- when the looting starts the shooting starts, uh, and 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 Jackie, I've got to disagree with you here. Uh, yes, you you are you the First Amendment entitles you to say uh, to say uh, 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 stupid things, and this was indeed stupid, but. Uh, the Supreme Court has all, uh, always, uh, all along, uh, had a limit on, on First Amendment speech. You, you don't get to shout fire in a crowded theater. And that's what, that's what Trump did at, at, at just about 1 a.m. this morning. Uh, and you'll know, Bill, I, I, have, have we, have, I don't think we've noted yet that, that, that Twitter has kind of shielded 
that that remark. Uh, it has it, you have to go an extra step to see it. You can't retweet it. You can't respond to it. Uh, and I th I think that's that's noteworthy. Uh, Twitter has never done that to a the the leader of a nation before anywhere. Yeah, um, a couple things. One, I would also disagree with Jackie. I mean, this doesn't infringe on his free speech. This warns people that there is an example of encouraging violence, of glorifying violence within this tweet. Uh, to Jim's point, you can't shout crowd in a crowd in a you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, and you can't shout you should shoot people if they're looting. Uh, and I also think it's very helpful to contrast this tweet with what he had to say about the Michigan protesters a few weeks ago. He called them very fine people, people who stormed the Michigan Capitol building with massive guns to protest their right to what, get a haircut? And then you've got these people who are out marching, protesting their right to not be killed by police extrajudiciously, and these people are thugs. I mean, that I can't imagine a more racist dichotomy there. Well, I, I think it was also important the fact that in, in these riots, there were um, there was looting. There was, I think, one retail area that was all the windows, but one were totally broken. Um, they, the police had to leave a precinct because it was too dangerous. I mean, if you have police that have to leave their own precinct building because of the danger of the riot, I think we need to think about maybe these aren't peaceful and maybe something should be – think about how do we control that. That is, as Jim mentioned earlier, that is terrible for that, that community, and it will have very long-term passing – I mean, effects forever. And I think we need to say that's not okay. Well, I, you know, and I, I think you can say something isn't okay – without suggesting that you should shoot them. <laughs> so that's first. Secondly, I think we need to. This is really important. We keep talking about how to control things, but we don't talk about how to prevent things enough. And that's where I talk about science and reason. What, why aren't we convening not just general pundits and, 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 and opinion givers about um, what is the root of racism, or why do people have such fears, or why are the oppressed um, to the point where sometimes they show up at the gates with pitchforks? Um, why does that happen? We need to start talking about why this, this human condition, from physiology to psychology. There are scientists who study this. Jackie mentioned earlier about you know areas of science. We need to take that stuff more seriously. And if you're an elected official and you don't know, then you, then while I often disagree with the liberal university, um, the fact is, is that we do need to have reasoned discussion about biology and psychology and how society adapts to oppression and what are the post-traumatic stress syndrome reactions you should see. These are real scientific things that we're not discussing enough. I'd like to see more discussion on causality. Jim, I, we, we, I want to move on to other subjects, uh, but before we wrap this part of it up, I want to go back to something you said at the very beginning of the show. You said that you believe that incidents like Ahmaud Arbery, uh, like George Floyd, like the president's tweet, like the rioting, this is going to be the major political conversation throughout the summer, probably, and leading up to the November elections. And I think that's a fascinating uh, observation. Uh, because coronavirus obviously has dominated the political conversation up till now, uh, but now we introduce this element, too, of uh, what many believe to be racist America, uh, and that is going to carry us through November as well, Jim. Yeah, okay, If, if uh, again, us, us, us old people will remember that, that after 68... Uh, uh, in in '68, uh, we had the the election of Richard Nixon, of course, and 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 he was running on law and order. And I think you could probably anticipate where Donald Trump is headed uh, with that with that one with that one tweet that we've we've been talking about. It's also going to affect Joe Biden, I believe. Number one, I think we can probably assume that all consideration of Amy Klobuchar, the U.S. Senator from Minnesota, is, is her chances are pretty much gone right now. And the chances that, that Trump will, will, will nominate for his, his, his running mate, a, a woman of color, have, have, have vastly increased. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you met, by the way, you met Biden nominating a woman of color. Oh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah. Uh, Jeremiah, what do you think about what, uh, what he said? Do you think that's correct, that Biden now uh, probably chooses an African-American uh, running mate? And do you believe that this is going to be a dominant theme all the way till November? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this has been a dominant theme for the last, I mean, six years of political discourse generally, and even more so now. And I do think Biden would be well served by choosing a woman of color for his VP, not just because of the optics of it, not at all because of the optics of it, but just because that brings in a different perspective. I mean, Biden has done his best to, you know, connect with these communities, but he still doesn't have that lifelong experience of, like Leo said, he's been stopped 11 times. Biden has probably never been stopped once in his life just because he looked suspicious, quote, unquote. I mean, he needs these kind of perspectives if he's going to meaningfully, like, speak to the issues that affect communities of color like this. So, yes, I think him not choosing a woman of color would be probably the biggest campaign blunder he can make. All right, Leo, we're going to take a break, but I want to give you the last word here. And, and let me set it up for you. I'm the oldest person on the show today. I'm 73 years old. I have been hearing people talk, uh, seeing stories in the news for decades about the racial divide in America, and we have to find a way to help solve it, help heal it, bring us together. We go through these periods, uh, awful periods like these deaths uh, in the past couple of months. It becomes a predominant issue again, and yet the issue lingers on and on and on. And you've kind of spoken to it, but is do we have hope for finding a way to heal this divide? I think that Americans believing in freedom and liberty and capitalism altogether um, have a duty to protect what our Constitution tries to guarantee. Those are good words, but they're made better by our actions. And that's why I continue to advocate for policy, for good hate crimes legislation or anti-terrorism legislation, for that matter, for um, the work that is in Minnesota where police officers can be charged for observing something. And so I think the action that we need is in policy. We can't convert the hearts of man, but we can enact legislation to help man do better. Leo Smith. Thank you for the final words for this segment. Uh, we want to come back and talk about uh, Brian Kemp's latest efforts to open the state for business and more. You're listening to Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Jim Galloway, uh, late yesterday afternoon, Governor Kemp held a news conference. He said that the mitigation efforts in the state are working. Uh, that uh, the that the people of the state have been taking precautions, even as businesses opened up, that have prevented the virus from uh, soaring uh, in 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 Georgia. And so he said, the next stage of opening will take place on Monday, when uh, bars and nightclubs can reopen with specific uh, uh, guidelines, and uh, gatherings of up to twenty five people will be permissible on June twelfth. Amusement parks are going to be able to reopen. And school systems can start holding summer courses if they follow, again, guidelines. There are a few other uh, uh, things that he has allowed, uh, said, can uh, now open. Uh, Yesterday, Jim, on Political Rewind, we had two public health experts on the show. And the question that really, despite their expertise, they can't answer is, we have seen an increase in virus cases in Georgia since the state started reopening. But they can't tell us if it's because more testing has, um, in fact, identified cases or if people mingling more uh, is, in fact, responsible. It, this is a very difficult issue, and the governor continues to take a big place, a big bet on business. Right, right. And, and it's, it, it, so far as we know, I mean, hospitalizations have kind of remained steady. Uh, the, 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 the fatality rate has has. Uh, has has dipped slightly, but not you know not 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 satisfactorily yet. I think that there are two things in this in this uh, decision that I think are are going to be noteworthy. Number one is increasing the size of crowds that can gather. 
Uh, I think that's mm. that that's 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 going to that's going to test social distancing quite a bit. I think uh, I think the amusement park uh, factor to to get Six Flags back open. That's you know this if you think about yes you can put distance between people, but but amusement parks are all all about uh, people taking rides on things that other people have ridden just moments before. And and so how do you do that and 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 main, maintain a, a sanitary situation? It's look, it's it's. Uh, I think we're going to. This is this is May is going to be a very important month, especially when you consider that we've got the legislature reconvening. Uh, we, I think it may be first of June before we know something. But you know, I'm I am just uh, like a cat on a hot tin roof about this. Leo, you're on the coronavirus task force, and so you've uh, been in meetings in which uh, you, you've discussed, heard the governor talk about his plans to open things up again. I want to give you a chance to comment on this. I, I did hear one quote from the governor that I thought was sort of uh, interesting, to say the least. In talking about continuing to open business, he said you can't fight the coronavirus from your living room. But in fact, Leo, public health experts would tell you that's exactly where you have to fight the virus, by sheltering in place. But go ahead and give us your take on all this. What I, what I think, and thank you, Bill, and everyone, I think that what the governor meant by that, and you know, that, that is sometimes a shortfall of a quote, is that, you know, I understand the governor to be very much into the freedom and liberty of people. And when some of the repercussions um, from staying so isolated that you're not earning any money, that you're losing your house, mm-hmm. that you can't afford to even get isopropyl alcohol, even when it's available because you have no money to buy it, um, that that can be even more dangerous, that you don't have the economic wherewithal to, to, to defend yourself. Where we're seeing our economic employment office, Mark, uh, Commissioner Mark Butler, they're still struggling to complete applications. Um, That's a major, major, major problem. So you've got to have a plan to get people back active so they can protect themselves. Economic power is protection. I actually agree. Um, And so I think part of the the challenge is we now know from the CDC they came out last week saying that it's much less, uh, that there's much less contamination from surfaces than they thought there was. We now know it's primarily um, droplets in the air. So the masks are important. and, And Governor Kemp talked about that, the importance of wearing masks when you're out. And for the vast majority of people, um, if they do get it, they will they will be sick, but they'll you know they will they will survive. It's, it's it's really those that are either elderly or have underlying conditions. And if you look at Georgia, um, the latest data that I saw was that over half of our cases were related to either the death cases were related to either assisted living or nursing homes. So clearly, we need to protect our most vulnerable. And Governor Kemp talked about that a lot. But we also need to get those that aren't the most vulnerable, those people that can go out and can be active, they need to be able to go out and have, um, you know, to your point, you know, have a job, go to work, you know, buy things, be active so that we can get our economy restarted again, but in a smart way. And I did talk about this, write about this this week in my column. I mean, I think right now it's impossible to get our economy restarted in a smart way. I mean, you look at the other sort of dense cities and countries other places like Seoul and Tokyo, places that implemented very aggressive contact tracing and testing very quickly. We haven't even tested 5% of Georgia's population yet. We have, as far as I know, no meaningful contact tracing program set up. Uh, we certainly, we may have the resources to treat people like at the moment, but if things keep going up, then we will stop having access to those resources. We are in no way, shape, or form ready to start opening up this aggressively. I mean, the fact that we are moving forward from a 10-person limit to a 25-person limit while cases are going up, I think that's absolutely irresponsible. And if we had a better system of social welfare in place, we could have people stay home because that's exactly what you need to do to fight this virus. But unemployment is hard to access because we've been cutting the Department of Labor for a decade. It's, we haven't expanded Medicaid, so a lot of people don't have access to their healthcare resources, either preventative or treating. So we are uniquely poorly positioned to tackle this crisis, either from the restarting economic activity side or from the staying home to fight it side. We really can't do either one well, and we're not. So I was actually in Korea um, in February, in early February, and the way that they first dealt with this was everywhere you went, people had on masks. They did, they had on masks, and 
They had people checking temperatures when you walked in the hotel. People were still out. People were still working. I went, I went to several, several work meetings. People were still, you know, um, you know, having the economy. So, it's, yes, they have contact tracing. But before that, if you actually do some of the prevention in terms of temperature checks and masks, et cetera, then you can hopefully prevent the need for, for that. Besides, I think we need to rethink the whole thing. And I think we're ready to stay open. But we do need to make sure that our, the most vulnerable are, um, are safe as we do this. One thing I'd just like to respond to real quick. You said that was early February. We didn't even get started doing any of that until the middle of March. So we were well past their point in the curve when we actually started addressing this issue. Right. Uh, I, I got to agree with Jeremiah on this. It's, it was uh, uh, it's South Korea set the, set the example when it started doing testing massively, massively, massively. We still we, we still don't have a, a, a handle on, on testing. And we've got – look – you know, is, uh, this is political rewind, so we do have to we we do have to to, to talk about uh, uh, about the, the the summer here. Uh, we've got we've got the the legislature reconvening. You know, they've they've decided apparently to do it all in person. Uh, that'll be interesting to see how they, they how they accomplish that. Uh, then we've got we've got uh, two in in August. We've got the two political conventions, and of course, everybody knows that Trump is kind of. Uh, uh, locking horns with with the governor of North Carolina over over uh, over over whether that should how, how many people should be allowed to to gather in Charlotte. Uh, the Democrats have been very quiet about their plans uh, on on what this uh, what this uh, uh, entails for for Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah, Leo, I want to bring in in uh, you in on this, and you too, Jackie. Uh, the uh, White House the uh, t- yesterday. Uh, told Roy Cooper, the governor of North Carolina, who's a Democrat, that they were going to give him till June 3rd to uh, declare that they could have an open convention and to uh, come up with the rules that would allow for Republicans to have a, 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 a regular convention with, with as many people as possible, or else they were going to move it. And Governor Kemp, of course, has indicated he'd be more than happy to bring the convention to Atlanta, Leo, even while the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, has said, we don't we don't need it. We're not ready to deal with it. Leo? Yeah, I, I would imagine that that's going to be quite a hurdle <laughs> with Mayor Bottoms absolutely being against <laughs> such a thing. Um, and she is running her own show and moving in her own direction. So that would be quite a challenge to even possibly do that. But who knows? Maybe the mayor's thinking about Savannah or Augusta. Who knows? I, I don't really know. Um, I do know that Florida is also being discussed. And, um, you know, so so we are lucky in Georgia that we've had members on the RNC Prevention um, Planning Committee. Um, and we've always had from Randy Evans to, to, to others. And so I know that we have representation there now and that people will make smart decisions about that. I myself will probably only go to that convention in a very limited way. Um, just I'd rather do the Jack, online version. Jackie, would you really want to see uh, the thousands of people who could be attending a Republican convention come to Atlanta and bring with them from across the country whatever viruses they may be carrying? You know, again, um, I think I think Texas is also bidding for it, and I think their their stance is Texas is the only state big enough to hold it. Um, so we'll see where it ends up. And I do think Leo has a, a good point about Mayor Bottoms and, and her stance. Um, but I do think we need, we need to think about how do we, you know, we this is this is probably a virus that's going to be with us on and off for a while. How do we go about our lives and do it in a safe way? And what does that mean for those that want to go out and wear the mask, not shake hands, you know, wash their hands, use hand sanitizer? Well, we can't, as much as we would all like to make sure we're totally safe, you know, the rest of our lives, the reality is we have to figure out how do we both take precautions and get on with living our lives. You know, one of the things about uh, Jim, before we le- go ahead, Leo. No, one of the things is, is I do think that as we talk about prevention, so we look at the executive orders of the governor about reopening, et cetera, but then we have to start to ask ourselves individually from our private companies or organizations, what can we do to help those people who are reemerging into regular life? How can we help them with prevention? Increasing testing. How can private organizations, nonprofits also be involved in testing? That is now the focus of my subcommittee. We're making recommendations to extend 
testing for the life cycle of the virus all the way to vaccination. So looking for private sector partnerships is very important. And, and it's not just the government that needs to respond. We need good ideas from everywhere. Um, all right. Before we leave this topic, Jim, one very quick point about it that you can uh, certainly speak to. Uh, it, it, the president may be threatening to pull the convention from North Carolina, but those of us who have covered conventions for years know just how complicated it is, how deep the infrastructure is, the planning is for a national convention. The contracts are signed five years in advance. Um, the, there's, there's hotel arrangements that are made, buses that are chartered. The notion of actually moving the Republican National Convention is a much heavier lift than uh, the president right now would like us to believe in suggesting, oh, we'll just take it somewhere else. Just, just think of the millions of dollars that are spent in advance on law enforcement, and we're, we're talking, we're talking yeah. about uh, the, the numbers that, that, that Trump is talking about are fifty thousand people coming into Charlotte from all <laughs> points in the United States. This, you know, it, it's it's got the potential. You know, one of the one of the early spot hot spots in, in the United oh. States was Mardi Gras. You know, when a hundred thousand people gathered in New Orleans, that's that's what helped spread it. Um, we're down to about the last three minutes of the show, and I'm leaving so many of the issues that I was hoping we'd get to uh, today on the table because I've really uh, found this conversation you've all been having really important and meaningful. But, Jackie, I do want to turn to something. Uh, Kelly Leffler has certainly taken her share of criticism in the media. Uh, she's now got commercials on the air in which she has uh, a supposedly real Georgians talking about what devils we in the media are. But, but she's... She's gotten a lot of criticism. Uh, there was a story, though, this morning that the AJC reported uh, that's, uh, you know, for the first time, I think, talks about her wealth in a positive way. It turns out Kelly Leffler, who said she would uh, donate her salary, Senate salary to charities, has been very quietly uh, giving money to any number of nonprofit organizations around uh, the state, organizations that she believes in. Is, is this... There's no way she can duck how wealthy she is. So is this the kind of effort that she's going to try to turn the corner with, showing how her money can be used for good? Well, uh, clearly she um, she didn't take this job for the money. As we know, she uh, said she'd self-fund this campaign and and put millions and millions of dollars into this. So we know that's a fact. Um, We also know that she's used to – she sent her private plane to pick up some Georgians that were um, secluded somewhere. She's used it for other purposes to donate – I think PP, um, PPP for other people. So clearly, I think at this point, she's embracing the fact that she has, you know, has wealth and is using it for good. So it's not surprising that she's doing this. Um, the question will depend whether or not this actually works um, in terms of an election strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the image uh, is going to be interesting to watch because uh, she apparently her staff kept this very quiet. Uh, they didn't talk about it publicly. But now that it's come to light, I just wonder if it'll have Uh, much impact on people out there who have been uh, feeling uh, not particularly warm about her. We are really out of time uh, for today's show, Um, but I've really enjoyed having all of you here. Jeremiah Olney, thank you for being with us. Uh, Leo Smith, you as well. Jackie Cushman, I was uh, negligent in not saying that people can read your columns at uh, I always go to JackieCushman.com, you, and, and that's as good a place as any to find them, I think. Uh, so thank you for being on the show today. And Jim Galloway, I'll see you again for another Political Rewind on Monday. The primary is approaching, and we got a lot to talk about in terms of the election, and we'll do that starting next week. I'm Bill Nygut. Everybody, I hope you have a good weekend. Take care, and please stay healthy.